Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. We've picked up quite a few new listeners, and I'm glad to have you aboard. You may not know that I have another show that is the opposite of talking serious about stand-up comedy. It's called the BTB Internet Talk Show, and it's live on the Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling channel on Twitch every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. The BTB Internet Talk Show is like if David Lynch and John Waters made a talk show. Yep, it's that weird. Every week I have special guests from comedy, showbiz, and fellow podcasters along with Dean Martin. Yep, that's right, Dean Martin. It's a lot of fun, and even when it's bad, it's good. Head over to twitch.tv, drinks, jokes, and storytelling, or click on the link in the show notes to know when we're going to be live next. That's 7.30 p.m. Eastern every Thursday. Come over and check out the weirdness, and boy is it weird. My guest today is a national and international comedy headliner. He's appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman and on Comedy Central. He's been featured in dozens of television commercials and has had roles in TV and movies movies it's wally collins folks wally let's bring you up hi wally how are you i'm doing okay how are you today hey i really appreciate you being on the show and i'm really glad that i was able to do a deep dive into the wally collins world because i got a lot of stuff to talk about okay i'm here (laughs) so i really i wanted to get into first of all the fact that in your adult life you didn't start out as a stand-up i I, I know that you used to be an architect. How long did you work as an architect before you started stand-up? That was long, maybe probably four years. Okay. And are you, and I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly where you're from. You're Midwest, aren't you? No, no North New England, <laughs> Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay, so East. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Growing up, did you, did you have a love for comedy? Did you, was there some comedians that you liked that, really sparked your interest or what was it that got that fire in you that eventually came out? You know what? It wasn't a love of comedy, but I enjoyed performing. I enjoyed that the power that I had when I was on stage, when I had everyone's attention. Mm. And I guess I got uh, addicted to that because I'm a musician. Mm. And, and even with the music, you can just, everyone's looking at you and you can just affect someone's mood by what you play or how you play. Yeah. As far as being a drummer, I know you're still a drummer. So that's another thing to talk about. What drummers did you really get into when you were young? I was very impressed with Steve Gadd. The reason why I got, I was impressed with Steve Gadd, because when I started to learn drums, I was listening to the Steely Dance Asia album. Uh And he had a really cool drum solo. And then I learned that he did the drum line for 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Oh. And 
then he did a drum line for uh, Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are. Okay. And and I thought it was just like here here was this pop drummer, but he had and it, and it was just a four four time signature, but he he had a way of making these drum lines so unique and so his. Uh-huh. And so that so that I just thought that was pretty fascinating. So when I got into drumming, Steve Gadd was probably like the first drummer that I was like, wow. Mm. And then as time goes on, you, you learn more of Max Roach and Art Blakey. goes on and on. Did you ever listen to any Sandy Nelson? Sandy Nelson? Yeah. No. I mean, I'm going way back. They, My mom had a bunch of his albums, and it was a drummer-oriented album. And okay. uh, he had this whole side that was called Birth of the Beat. And okay. it's it's just amazing how it goes through because it's basically dun, dun, and then by the end of it, it's just a full on jazz onslaught. And there's other instruments in there, but it's really centering on the drummer. And I'm a kind of a drummer aficionado, so I I was really into Keith Moon when I was a kid. So oh, I wow. I really dig drummers and i always when i listen to music i try to separate the drum track in my mind so that because that's really that's the backbone of everything so oh, yeah, yeah. I understand that how important a drum is keeping keep, not only keeping a steady beat keeping steady time but also too you really subconsciously understand it's it's the heartbeat yeah of uh of every song. So I'm reading, this is totally off topic, but I'm reading Rob Halford's autobiography, and he's the singer for Judas Priest, and they went through three drummers, and it's amazing. He And I didn't even realize this. They did an album called Painkiller, which is like their hardest album, and it's the most it's the most like heavy metal type drumming of the, you know how it's and yeah, and their former drummer that was with them for like probably 25 Five years prior just couldn't do that and then they got this new guy and the album just totally changed the way that they were oh, yeah. and yeah it's amazing because he rob actually says he says we never could have made that album without that drummer it's scott something or other but uh, yeah it, it, it's it's amazing that the drummer plays such a big role and yet they're they're I don't want to say they're the least least popular in a band. It's usually the bass player that gets the least love. But and truly, the drummer and bass player are the ones that have to work together the most. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, welcome to my music podcast where we talk about drums. <laughs> <laughs> you go to school and you get the architect degree, and you're doing the architecture stuff. And one, well, of actually, the... you know, I didn't. I didn't get the degree after the second year. I uh, I got a job. Okay, uh, and and I learned more within maybe like during the summertime. I learned more in probably those three or four weeks than I would learn in six months going to school. Yeah. So I was talking to my boss, and he was like, "Really want to go back to school?" And I was like, ah. "Yeah." So I yeah. So I, I I love the business. I love designing buildings and watching them start from from a foundation to, to people are actually going inside of it. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was pretty fascinating. And yeah, I was in the game for a while. For like four years. So you've got an art base obviously with the drumming and architecture is an art and so you've got that art base and you're doing a few years of architecture but one of the things i read is that your parents actually were pushing you in to get into stand-up can you talk about that it wasn't more like they were pushing they were were more being supportive okay because um my mother asked me if i could be anything or do anything what would i what would i do and i told her that i'd love to be an actor Mm. And she says, "Why are you designing buildings? If you want to, if you want to be an entertainer." And I said, well, "I come from Springfield, Massachusetts. No one famous ever came from Springfield." And she gave me three words: "You never know." And I said, "Do you 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 want me to do?" She goes, 
listen, we want our kids to be happy. And because it doesn't make sense to be miserable just doing something that you, that you hate or have a job or that you can't stand, do what you love. But be responsible about it, too, because the first time I got on stage, I was still working in the uh, architectural world. And, and I would, after work, I would go and, and do comedy. And after, like, a few gigs, a few shows, I should say, I was ready to quit. Yeah. And my, my like, well, wait, let, let it be a, an easy transition. And I really didn't understand what that was or how it was going to happen. But the way the universe works, it, it told me when to quit because, I'll tell you, I developed an ulcer. And, and I was telling doc, doctors, like, you're really stressed. And I'm like, I guess. He goes, what are you doing? So I was telling him what I was doing. He goes, yeah, you're, you're burning the candle at both ends, buddy. You got to make a decision, either architecture or this entertainment world or being a comedian. And I just went to my boss on a Friday. I'll never forget that. And he knew I was doing comedy. And I went and told him, I was like, we got to talk. And even before I told him what I was going to put in my two weeks, he says, listen, good luck to you. Stood up from the back of his desk, shook my hand. He says, you're going to be great. So yeah, that just told me that it was time to move on and go for my dream. So did you have a net? Obviously, you were fairly young because you'd only been in the workplace for a while. Did, did you right. have a plan or what was going on? I didn't have a plan. All you do is just enjoy the ride. Yeah. <laughs> plan? <laughs> <laughs> Now, had you started traveling even while you were doing the architect job at the same time? No. The only traveling that I did was probably like was how far my car would take me mm. and, and able to get back to work in time. And I, that got grueling. It's like I would get out of work at five and jump in my car and drive maybe three, four hours sometimes mm. and turn around and come back and try to get to sleep. Yeah. But, but once, yeah, once I quit my so to speak day job, yeah, I was able to travel, man. I was able to you know, jump on a plane or, you know, jump in my car and go and then sleep over and that mm. kind of stuff. So now your style is pretty, it's storytelling and observational. Was yeah. that the way it was when you started? When I started, my style has been described as clean and clever. Yeah. And but I, I kind of like that. And now when I started, man, I was dirty blue, just, just right. Yeah. I was just going for anything that made people laugh. And I thought that was common. So until one day my parents wanted to see my act. My mother's a Christian. My father's a former Marine DI, military. Uh-huh. I got up there and just started cursing and doing it. And my father was like, don't, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he just said, listen, if you want us to support you and what you're doing, just make us proud of what, what you're doing. Uh-huh. And, he said, and he says, when you're on that stage, just imagine us in the audience. And, and so it was like my thank you to them to try to work clean. Mm-hmm. And, and then as time went on, I enjoyed the challenge. If I had a premise or a joke idea, I tried to be, be clean, but I tried to be as clever as I possibly could mm-hmm. to make it entertaining for me and also for the audience. It's funny how when you look at somebody, you expect a certain type of comedy. Yeah. And, and I go through that myself because I do have the propensity to get edgy in the, like I'm a super liberal and get get really edgy in that way. Not necessarily talking about sex or dropping the F-bomb all the time, but when right. I try that, it doesn't work. And it's just not me because I look like either your pharmacist or your high school history teacher, and that's not what they expect out of me. So right. I just work clean and it just makes it easier for all of this. And you can go further when you work clean too, you can do a lot more gigs. And I, I believe that if you want to curse, use it as seasoning. Don't use it as a punchline. And it's funny that everybody wants to be the next whoever, George right. Carlin, Bill Burr, whoever they want to be. But right. when you really 
come back to why you want to entertain. It's because you want to make a living entertaining and be able to do things on your own terms. And doing that sometimes means you have to adjust your act a little bit in order to get enough gigs to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a compromise. If you want to be a a working actor, a working comedian, you're going to have to, so to speak, do more jokes that are relatable to the masses. But if you want to be more of that unique kind of comic, you got the Stephen Wrights, you got, I mean, you can go on and on. Even Bill Burr, he, he, he has that niche. And these comics who are <clears throat> these special kind of comics, I've seen them bomb. And I also, I also see them get standing ovations. Yeah. It's really up to you if you want to be like a steady working comic. Yeah, you can find those classic or easy jokes, whatever. But if you want to be this artist or whatever, you really you know, only take those hits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the starving artist thing is uh, truly starving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So one of the things I read is uh, when you did one of your first sets, you just felt like you did terrible, and yet the club owner said, hey, I'm, I would like you to do more. Can you talk about that set and why you thought you did bad and why the club owner thought you were better than you were? Well, from, you know, this is a while back now, but from what I remember, yeah. my, see, my goal was when I got on that stage that people were going to be just giving me applause and just yeah. slapping tables and things like that because <laughs> in my mind and on that drive up i'm hilarious so there's these jokes how can i lose with these yeah. jokes <laughs> but this is my mind and and also too when you're doing jokes working on setups and things like that and it's a comic a syllable or or an inflection can affect the punchline completely and in those things you have to learn those, those are techniques funnier words are words with a hard consonants you know mm-hmm. pickle knuckle dribble mm-hmm. and also too you never put the same word in your set in your setup and in your, in your punchline or payoff. So those things you, you learn as you go on. And those those are techniques. And so I know I made mistakes like that on that stage. However, this manager slash booker, he saw the performance in me. He saw that I was comfortable on stage. That I, that I really wanted to give something to the audience. That I had a passion for for what I was doing. And so he saw that. Thank goodness he saw that. And that's why I said come back and settle in to where, where I'm comfortable or what I'm, I'm comfortable doing. Mm. There's a key differentiator there in performers. You wanted to do something for the audience, and a lot of them that get up there for their first times want something for themselves. And yeah. that, that I see that. And that's one of the first times that's been brought up. You're my probably the 66th person I've talked to. And that's the first time that's been brought up about being more, we talk about audiences sometimes, some of the people I talk to, but we don't talk about what your attitude is when you walk on stage. Do you right. want to give something or do you want to take something? And, uh, yeah. it, Club owners know that. People who have been in the business do understand that, and that's why people get booked. Yeah. Club owners also, too, club, you know, it's, it's a business. And club owners, what they want to do is put butts in the seats. And and you break it down any way, that's how they're going to survive. Mm. And the club owners, they'll book someone who, so to speak, has their own niche or their certain style if they have a strong following. Mm. But they will, they will book comedians who are good entertainers. Yeah. And there's a lot more of them that are who, yeah, are not necessarily great writers, but can entertain an audience. Yeah. And so, and it's easier, but you'll get kind of like the same 
person or the same kind of act in a different shirt, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. That's when you have to decide why should people pay their hard-earned money to see me? Mm. You know, what makes me what makes me worthy of getting on that stage and people you know, paying their hard-earned money and having these bookers book me for these for these particular gigs. But that's a question that we ask ourselves all the time. And, and they say it takes five years to know your character on stage. Mm. But I think it's always evolving. Yeah. So. so what were those, what was like the first two years like when you walked away from the architect job and pursued comedy full time? I just thought it was amazing. I was making, you know, really good money doing something that I love doing, that mm. I enjoy, that I truly enjoy doing. And I just mm. thought that was like, is this right? I felt kind of guilty, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I had comedy friends and they're like, no, this is it. This is what the deal is, man. This is life now. Yeah. Your, your career. And, but then as I got uh, more into it and understanding the craft, I went out to Boston and watched the, those comics. Yeah. And yeah, that's when I kind of got like a kick in the head, like, oh, this is a whole nother level. Yeah. Because the way that they, they put the words, the way that they, some of them wouldn't move at all. And I'm very energetic, just like that. But I just thought it was fascinating that they get applause breaks and standing ovations on just standing there in front of a microphone and just talking. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is a whole new level. Yeah. Of, uh, <laughs> I, I have to understand. Yeah. It's, it does take a lot to get in front of complete strangers and have them react collectively. Like you said. Yeah. Thinking about your writing before I get into writing, yeah. you were making good money to start out. That's one thing that's a little bit different today because features used to make, a lot more money than they do now. When you're talking either the, the one-night shows at a bar or an FOP or whatever, or the even the three-nights or the three-show weekends or whatever, they mm -hmm. don't make as much as they used to, so a lot of them, they have to keep that job a lot longer or they have to live uh, a lot more frugal than like in the car and stuff. I know ones that still do. And uh, so it's a different, it's a little bit different even than 10 years ago. The, the land landscape has changed. Do you think that if you would, so say you were 24 years old now and you decide you're going to go into comedy from the architecture job, do you think you, architect job, do you think you would be as comfortable as you were when you did it the first time? Yeah, because it was the love for it. If this is the, what I have to do, or this is the grind, I'll do it. Yeah. Like I said, I was doing it for the love of it mm. and just getting on that stage and it's, it's it's like heroin or crack, man. Once you get that, that full laugh of a of a joke that you constructed, mm. want, you want that over and over again. And yeah, I would, and I still do, man. I'll still go to an open mic. I'll still go to somewhere when I'm not getting paid. Like these Zoom shows that I yeah. do, you know. Or in fact, here in New York, Central Park, they were doing comedy in Central Park last year, last summer, and there was no microphone. You're under a tree, and uh -huh. people just gathered around, and you're telling your jokes like that. If I didn't have the love for it, my ego would have been like, I ain't doing that. But I truly enjoy the the back and forth, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I give them something and they give me the adulations or the, 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 the confirmation mm -hmm. that I that they're enjoying what I'm doing. Right. And that it just makes me want to go further and further. But yeah, it's the love for it. Do you have any love for zoom comedy is that something that you would still like to do after everything opens back up not really but 
I did learn another way of doing comedy, slowing down, trusting the joke that, because a lot of us, of course, back in the day when there was an audience, you feed off that, that laughter that you can like rest and collect your thoughts in that, in that, in that little time space of laughter to say, okay, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. Mm-hmm. And when I first started doing Zoom shows, yeah, I, I, I was definitely stumbling over my words. And because you definitely, I out of habit, because like jokes out that I did already, I knew they would get a laugh and I can know I could like perch there, yeah. but I didn't hear the laughter. Right. So stumbling, I'm like, oh, you got to fill this space up because I'm hearing it. Yeah. And, but then I had to learn, I learned that, I don't have to fill that space up. I have to be comfortable with myself and comfortable, like just staring at this screen because people at home are are laughing right. or enjoying it or whatever. Yeah, so it's a different a different way of presenting, and also too doing you know shows in Central Park or in the park. Same thing, man. It's like now you have to be larger than life because all these other distractions that people are throwing frisbees and dog barking, kids like screaming or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, the, the ice cream man dingling is dingling dinger, you know, and so you got to do everything you can to, to keep the focus on you. And so I, I appreciate it too because I know I'm going to need that at some time. I know I'm going to need what I've learned in some cases, and it has happened where I've done shows and the mic didn't work, uh-huh. and and I, and I and I just kind of just so to speak did my act without a mic. Yeah. And I remember that, and, and it helped me do these uh, some, uh, the park shows, all the park shows. So, yeah, so it does help. You're learning. It's a, it's a new muscle, but I, I think it is necessary. And you put it, you just put it away. Put it away in your pantry, so to speak, in your, in your mind. Yeah. And you're going to, oh, I'm in this situation. And then go for it. Yeah, it's definitely a it's a learning curve, but it's also, it's, I think when you work on both the outdoor and the zoom comedy, cause I've done both of those that you, you get, I think it's going to make me better on stage. I feel like, yeah. and one thing with zoom comedy that I learned and it took me a little while is that your audience is completely captive. They are watching that screen and they yeah. are not going to stop watching if you pause a little bit longer. They, they yeah. it, it's like a YouTube yeah. video and stopping to pause and just staring at the camera, leaning in a little bit for your punctuation and stuff like that really helps to um, yeah. keep people engaged. Yeah. I kind of dig zoom. I, and the other thing about it is I've gotten in a few groups of people where we do writing workshops and we bounce ideas off of each other. And I think that's fun too. Just meeting other right. people. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that helps too, because it, it gives a different perspective on a, a premise or a joke yeah and, uh, that definitely helps yeah i agree so let's i was going to talk about writing let's talk about that now first off during the pandemic did you do much writing yeah did yeah, you I, oh yeah i wrote stuff about the work well here's the thing is that in the beginning no one knows still don't no one knows what's going on and what, yeah. what's when's going to get back to and i can't say normal but some kind of normal yeah and i, I said i gotta be prepared for it. I gotta be, I gotta be ready. And also being an entertainer and being home, you, you gotta do something with your brain. So that's what I did. So I wrote 10 minutes. I probably got like 20 minutes now of pandemic humor. Yeah. You know? And yeah, I think you're always as a comic, you're always writing and not, and not necessarily, I just say this too, and not necessarily just pandemic humor, 
but other stuff that's been going through my mind and I have my, my trusty uh, phone here and I yeah. throw my notes down and, and then maybe in a Zoom show or maybe at a park show or even when I'm having a conversation, kind of slip that joke in there. Yeah. And do it. <laughs> See how it works. Yeah, See how it works. yeah. It, it's funny because I've, in, in talking to people over the last year, the extremes I get, and I was on a different extreme where I didn't see an end to it, so it was really hard for me to write because right. my my stuff is just, it's not current events, it's observational and storytelling, and my life really wasn't doing a whole lot. So I, it was hard for me to do, and I finally had to force myself to every morning take 10 news stories and write some one-liners about them. And then I took some of those to Zoom shows and did them. I'll never say them again. But, right. you know, it at least kept, you know, the writing muscle working, kept my brain working. And I still try to set aside a few minutes every day just to write something, even if it's something that's not never going to see the light of day. See, and also, too, I challenged myself, too. I, I started a YouTube channel, mm. and it's called Wait What with Wally. Uh-huh. And and so I said, you know what, I want to have a show where I'm hosting it, but I also want to put some of my comedy in there, some of my personality in there, mm-hmm. and also have it be entertaining. So it's a, it's a compilation uh, of videos and photos of what's going on in the world. And to, to, to the point, you're going to say, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, and I'm very proud of my work. I'm very proud of how it came out. And I became the you know, the editor. I became the director, sound guy, lighting, uh-huh. um, wardrobe, what else? Talent, writer, yeah. producer. Yeah. And I tell you, man, I have so much respect for these YouTubers who, who have stuff every week, come out with stuff every week, man. Oh, my gosh. It was for me. It was a co- trying to get the content. And you got to worry about copyright uh, uh, infringement. And, uh, and then writing jokes or writing bits or doing a bit tour for that particular episode. And uh, yeah, there are times, man, I wanted to cry. What have I done? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I said, no, there's, I'm not doing anything else. Stick to yeah. it. And so I told myself, I'm going to do 12 episodes. And I did the 12. And it was like this celebration for me of mm-hmm. saying, you know what? I, I stick to it. And I, I did that. Mm-hmm. And it's there forever. Yeah. And I'm proud, I'm proud of what I've done. Did you know how to edit video before you got into it? Because yours is pretty, your video editing is good. I've, so I am trying just to do snippets. So you see how we're side by side. So before your episode comes out, I do a snippet and I want to make it so it's phone friendly. So that would put you on top and me on the bottom. And it took me an hour and a half to figure out how to do that in my video editing software. But I did it. Now I know how to do it. Next time it'll maybe only be an hour, but it's a learning curve and you got to learn stuff that you don't know. Okay. So I had in mind. The show I had in mind how it was going to come together, things like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so I had to learn how to put the graphics, on. and 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 then they say the Chiron or the the bug, uh, the stinger. And do I want it floating? Do I want it? Do I want it to do this and fade out? Yeah, you know the music. I wanted, and then I I wanted something quick, and then I wanted something with meaning, and then I had to do the graphics for the actual show itself. Uh, yeah, here we go. I, I had to I had to learn that and in those graphics where because people are gonna look at this stuff on their phones and you can't have any too small words you gotta right. have, so anyway so yeah I learned all that and I'm happy with the fact that I learned all that because I know I'm gonna use it somewhere else yeah and also I wasn't doing anything else yeah. <laughs> 
it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you are somebody who's equal parts of idea and execution. If Because I'm very much idea and execution is so, it takes so much effort. And when we're like this, the you got to do it all, like what you said, and you got to force yourself to do the execution. So when I'm doing stuff for the podcast, I'm like, I've got great ideas, but I would like to pay somebody to do this, but I'm not making enough money at it yet to do it. And so it's learning, I guess, is good. And because at least you know what you want when you're done with it. And yeah, I mean, it really is. If you go back to the comedy world, it really is these young jacks. They want to get a manager. They're in the game for a year. They want to get a manager. And, and they'll say, I'm, I'm going to get a manager. I'm like, well, you want your own career. And, it, and I think, I, well, I would tell these, these young, young comics, I said, get a manager when your career needs managing. You yeah. can do all that. You can make those phone calls. You can worry about your own travel. You know how to travel, what you want, what you like or what you would like. And you need to know those things because when you finally get a manager, you can say to them, listen, do this and this. If things don't go you know, go the way you want them to go, mm-hmm. you know that you can get it done or you tell them specifically how you want it done. And also, too, that relationship with bookers. A lot of these young jacks, they just trust their agents or the representation, so to speak, of the booking for these shows. And the booker and the club owner, they have a relationship, but they really have a relationship with you yeah. and as a performer. And I think it makes a lot of sense to really get a relationship with the club owner or the booker of that book of the club or of that venue, because if, if they like you on the personal level, they're going to probably book you again. They're going to probably look at your style in a different way or whatever. Right. And yeah. And if you have a, if you stumble on a, a joke or whatever, or you have a kind of a sucky set, whatever, you, they're cool with you. And yeah. they're like, you know, so yeah, I really think it's very important that you, you do the hard work first and then you'll know how you want it done. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Talking about your writing and your style, you have enough stuff on YouTube and it goes back for a few years. I've seen you do the same joke at least three different ways. And specifically, I'm talking about the name, oomph and pajama. And and I've seen, I've seen like the long version. I've seen the short version. I've seen you turn it inside out because you've got a friend named freedom and stuff like that. How do you decide how you're going to present that joke when you're on stage? Does it have to do with the way you want to do it before you get on stage or what the audience is responding to? Oh yeah, it's definitely got to be organic. Because here's the thing, man. If you're doing, if you're doing a club, and you're doing, let's see, you're doing Thursday, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday, sometimes three shows Saturday. Yeah. By that fourth show, come on, yeah. you're gonna be like, oh. <laughs> yo. And there have been times, man, and they haven't been doing it now because whatever. But I remember back in the day when the shows would sell out on Saturday night, and the second show sold out, and the, then the club owner would be so happy, he goes. We're doing a third show. And so you got to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, I really feel that you have to make it fun for you too. And also when, this is for me, I really shouldn't say for everybody else, but for me is that if I twist it a little bit, if I change the setup a little bit, it's fresh for me and I don't fall into that habit of falling into a rhythm like da 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 Next joke. And I see many comics do that. And because it's almost like if it works, don't fix it. And I always believe that it works fine, but you always can tweak it. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I look at jokes like that. Like I always tweak in that. And I get so self-conscious of my jokes because uh, I look at, I'll do a joke one night and I'll look at the next week. I'm like, oh, I should have did that way. And did that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I was really impressed with the, the name joke, obviously, just because you you not only switch up the length and stuff, but even the tags are a little bit different yeah. each time you do it. And that's really the first time I've seen somebody, I've seen different variations of jokes, like clean, dirty, and stuff like that. But that's the first time I've seen somebody really change it almost from the inside out based on the type of set they're doing or the audience they're in front of. Right. And also, too, it's so funny because I teach and I have a student because I, I did a joke and it, and it was fine. I was getting I was getting strong laughs. Mm. But in my brain, I was saying, you know what? I know it could be better. I know it could be better. I ripped the seal off it, off of it, and I kind of took it back out and, and I tweaked it. And and I did it. And I was working in, working in New York. This is a couple of years ago. And I tweaked it. And I like how... I changed the punchline, and, and I do a lot of jokes. Mm-hmm. And I remember she coming up to me, and she goes, that joke you do about, I think talking about my wife or something like that, and she goes, that, your punchline was fine, but you changed the punchline. Why'd you do that? And she's almost like, why would you do that? Don't you change know? that joke on me. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and I was like, what? You know? And, and she was like, why'd you do that? And I go, because I felt that it could be better. And, and it really kind of could be better. Yeah, yeah, like you got your laugh. Yeah, you know, on. and I'm like, yeah, you know, it's it's my work, and I want to be proud of my work. And if I, if I had the opportunity to make it better, or in my mind, to something I'm more satisfied with, I'm going to do that. And yeah, I think that's I'm- funny because you really expose somebody to the art part of comedy the you're painting a picture and you're painting it a little bit different you're changing that happy little tree to a happy little bush or something like that and they're actually seeing that and they don't get it now right. they have to go home and find out that guess what comedy is actually an art <laughs> yeah and it's so funny man because when you talk to comics and like this the new ones their idea or understanding what comedy is it just go really it, it really makes me twist my head like yeah. Oh, it's just a business. You have you get a product, you uh-huh. and you're happy with it, and then you can go far as you can go with it with that product, saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. You'll get the same results, so to speak, and people are happy with that. Yeah. And it's and, and that's the reason why I love living in New York City. And I think the most popular club now is called the Comedy Cellar. Mm-hmm. And I watch my peers and I watch you know these other comics get up there, and and just be these word surgeons get up there and just do these, yeah. You know, these incredible jokes, you mm-hmm. know, that, and that also tells the comic after them that they have to do their best. Yeah. And that says the comic after them, they have to do better. Yeah. So, so that's only where you're going to get the most out of yourself and be at the top of your game. I, I envy you being in a major city and being able to see that because one of the cool things about being a fan of comedy, not just doing it, is watching an artist take a joke from one one step, like they're on the first step, and they take it all the way up where they can do it on Netflix. And, oh, yeah. and the Comedy Store was another one like that. And they said that Richard Pryor would go up and he would do an hour at the Comedy Store late night and he would get nothing 
there was mm -hmm. no response at all. And then he would come back, do a little bit better, a little bit more response, a little bit more response. And then he, that same act after he fine tuned it, will go to HBO. Yeah. And it was just amazing. That's what we have to do. Is the, the, you got to do the reps and you got to do the adjustments and understand what the audience is feeling. But mm -hmm. on on the other hand, what makes it hard is you've got a different audience all the time. <laughs> and you don't know, this may not have worked today, but tomorrow it may go over great. Yeah, you, you got yeah, to find a happy medium too. That speaks to your so to speak character on stage. Yeah. So that gets tricky too. I look at when I do my stuff, because I'm a musician, I look at it in a musical way that, and so when I have an idea, I have a melody and, and maybe a, a soft bridge and then maybe a soft chorus. Mm -hmm. And so I'll get on stage and get that melody out and see what kind of reaction I'm getting. And then I'll add it with the melody, you know, uh, with the bridge and then with the chorus. Mm -hmm. And that's my punchline but almost like a suggestion. What do you think of this one? And if, even if I get like a, or an interest or a chuckle, whatever, I'm like, okay, I'm onto something. Yeah. And then I'll do it again with a little more belief behind it. Yeah. And push it out. And, but then I'll tweak it. And it's so amazing, man. A syllable can change a joke completely. Yeah. And I have to be mindful of that. And also where you put the words and how, and what you want to end your sentence on that, that makes a difference too. So you keep that, in, for me, I keep that in mind, and it's like, and yeah, and then people, and it, it flows. Yeah, yeah, that's, it, it's, I just love watching people create, and the example, the, the name joke that you've got, that was an example for me. I think I saw, I think I saw it in 2013, 2017, and maybe 2020, so it was pretty cool watching that. One of the things that, obviously, I did deep stalking of you before we started talking, and one of the that things, yeah... <laughs> One of the things that's on YouTube is you on this uh, morning zoo radio show. And the, I've never talked to comics about this, but it, uh, <laughs> it's the thing that you have to do. It's the cross you have to bear in order to be a comic. You got to go on and do the morning Early. zoo shows. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. have you, what's your experience with those? There's obviously different talent in different cities and some are, much better than others. The one I watched, I did not like the guys at all. <laughs> I don't know how you felt about them, but they were they were crass as far as I I was concerned. Having to do that and get up, especially after maybe you got into town at two or three in the morning and get a couple hours of sleep and then go do that. What's that like? And does it? What does it give you? Does it? Has that actually turned around some new fans for you? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. You gotta be ready for it. It's almost like you warm up on the ride over there. Yeah. And, and you have some bits in mind. And also, it's a dance with these uh, these DJs or these hosts because their egos are huge. Yeah. They're, they're show. Yeah. And they don't necessarily want you to out funny them. You kind of want to be funny with them, something. And if they allow you. Excuse me. If they allow you to be funny, that's when you shine. Yeah. But yeah, so you, you might dance with them. But for the most part, these DJs are frustrated comedians anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, too, man, they're not getting immediate feedback. They're thinking that their stuff is hilarious and they have to believe that and push it out there. Yeah. You know, these bits and things like that. So 
that's kind of tough. Yeah, and I'm sure there's an envy there because we, we're there for maybe two hours, three hours, whatever, and we're out. Yeah. And then if things go well, those people heard you on the radio, they're going to come check, check you out. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you get that fan base there. So, yeah, so what it's like is that it's work, but you got to understand that what you're doing promo and you're getting people to come to see you and it helps the, the club owner and it helps for the radio station. And so that and sponsors. Yeah. So that then win-win for pretty much everybody and be prepared to, to do some stuff. But you really don't have to do much. They'll throw something out there. I've done this so many times. And they think it's hilarious. You just die. That's so crazy. You guys are so, you guys. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. And then they're like, you're great. And then, you know, and enough of uh, uh, stroking their eagles, whatever, they'll say, you guys got to come check them out. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a party for two hours and two or three hours. And you just have to, so to speak, when they say stroke the host. Yeah. Yeah. It's a party, but you're more of a caterer than a uh, part of the party. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You, you bring, you bring, you're bringing in your dish. Yeah. You know? And, and you know, here's a something. Yeah. And then, and you're out. Yeah. And I, I know that they do absolutely no research. Most of them on who they're going to be talking to. They get your one page and right. read it before you come on. And the first time they're reading it, they'll yeah. read it while you're there and they're like oh you did i'm like yeah yeah, yeah. And, and some of them there have been times where it was like a job for them like another comic mm. you know and, and sometimes they would have their, their co-host or someone else do the segment yeah it, but once again i look at it as this promo getting people getting people to come see you you know, getting it helps your fan base and it helps your sponsors advertisers and, yeah and it's so just something you gotta do something you gotta do yeah yeah I one of the things that I admired about you is you took the comedy and you've been able to do other things with it, like get into the acting and TV and movies and things like that. What yeah. what prompted you to do it, and what were your ends? How did you get in to be able to do that? That's the reason why I got into comedy because I wanted to be an actor. Mm. And so yeah, so then I just once I had my show on Comedy Central, mm. and that helped me a lot to um, book commercials and. and things like that. But I took acting courses and, and worked with acting coaches and things like that. Yeah. And once again, for me, it's that, that feeling of power that I, I can, I can pull up an emotion or try to get an emotion out of someone who's watching, you know, what I'm doing. The kid, you play acting and it just allows you to, to, to play and just, just have fun. And then there's some money at, at the end of it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I enjoy that. Yeah. I just think it's really neat that you've been able to, you know, parlay the the comedy into other things. The the mm-hmm. other thing I wanted to ask is you're one of the few married comics that I've talked to. Obviously last year you probably didn't travel as much, but when you're when you're traveling a lot, how does that affect the marriage? Does your wife come with you? Does she wait for you to come home? Does she get pissed off when you have to do an extra night? How does that work? She only comes with me to the exotic places. Okay. Like yeah. in, the warm you know, yeah. yeah. Like I work in Hong Kong, she's there. China, yeah. she's there. Netherlands, she's there. Um, yeah, she yeah, she loves that kind of stuff. Or I, I or if it's like a resort or casino because yeah. she slot machines. Yeah. And, um, in fact, you know, it's funny when I think about it because she loves slot machines. I would book myself every year in Atlantic City and uh-huh. on her birthday, that week of her birthday, and she would just love it, man. Just, uh, I would work. I'll do my 45, half hour, 45 minutes that night, 
And then for the rest of the week or whatever, the rest of the day, we're going to outlets, going to the beach or whatever. And so it was kind of like a like a vacation kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, but she when we met, she I was a comedian when we met. And she knew or knows that I have to travel. She knows that sometimes, which I hate doing, but we will make plans for something and something will come up, a gig will come up, and I got I to gotta break those plans. However, she knows that because I feel so guilty, I'll make up for it. We'll fly first class to the next time we'll go someplace yeah. or she'll get some kind of special pampering or something like that. So she knows at, at, at the, in the end, on the other side, so, you know, she's going to get a better deal. It's really neat to to be able to keep up a relationship when there's just so much traveling. It's also, too, I think what helps the relationship is that I'm not around. So I come back and tell her what happened, and she'll tell me what happened. And, yeah, the last year I was here every day. That was that could be grueling on, on us. But luckily, we live in one of the big apartments in New York. And so she could be – she's working from home. Uh-huh. And so she's on the other side of the apartment. I don't see her for, like, hours. Yeah. And, and that the one time I, I asked her to meet me for lunch in the in the um in the living room and uh, and gave me, I, I was late and uh, I told her, <laughs> I told her it was traffic but she was cool with that but um, yeah she knows and you know she knows that I am I'm always busy that I'm I got to do something and uh, she knows that yeah and, uh, but yeah but she, but she knew that like I said she knew that going in yeah I, you know what I do. That's funny. The uh, the pandemic actually tested marriages in a different way because being joined at the hip for that long. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does. It helps you to appreciate a person, when to give them space, when to know that you need space. Mm. You know? And so, yeah, this pandemic has definitely yeah, has it made people look into themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. This is the one I ask just about everybody. What is the best and worst advice you got coming up the best and worst advice for what for comedy stand up the best advice wow every joke has to be your closing joke write mm-hmm. every joke as your closing joke and what i mean by that don't settle until you get applause break mm-hmm. so when if you write every joke as your closing joke you can close or open with any joke that you want. Yeah. And I would tell my students, ABC, always be closing. So uh-huh. even <laughs> your, opening, your opening bit is your closing bit and your closing bit could be your opening bit. So that's great. That's, that's the first time I've heard that one. There you go. Yeah. And the worst, jeez, be inspired by everything, but don't try to be that comic or that person. I'm telling you, man, living in New York City, I've seen the Bill Burrs. I've seen the Chappelle's. I've seen the, oh, my goodness, the, the Sarah Silverman's, uh-huh. the one. Because people, they, they see that comic, and they're like, oh, my God. And, and they, you know, of course, you channel them, but some people try to be them. And and I've, oh, God, I've seen it, and it just makes me cringe. You can be inspired by them, but throw you in there. Yeah, so... Be yourself as it most possibly can be. Be yourself, I say. That's great. Closing out, where can people find you? What do you have going on that, if you're doing any live shows, what do you have going on that people can find you? Well, definitely, I need likes and subscribers for my uh, YouTube channel called Wait What With Wallet. Please go there and watch 
those episodes over and over again. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, the one on religion and all those clips you got of the pastors just uh, tearing into the congregation that what yeah. you're not worth 15 cents. I, I laughed so hard. And then the, the guy who came from the pulpit and grabbed the girl's phone <laughs> and threw it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sitting there. I'm going to have to show it to my wife when she gets home because I was watching it this morning by myself and I'm cracking up. And you know how weird you feel when you're cracking up in the house by yourself. And I was just like, oh, this is great. I crack up all the time. Yeah. (laughs) You know, my wife would come to me like, what's going on? I'm like, this is hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so yeah, and that's what the show is. Not necessarily fails or bloopers, but it's it makes you go, wait, what? Yeah, and you kind of go back and, re- and re- rewatch those things. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and also I have a show on Netflix. I'm in a show called The Get Down. Uh-huh. Um, you can watch that on Netflix. And what else? I guess those those two really, but definitely watch Wait What with Wally. I'm very proud of that. It took me some time, and it was grueling learning. Yeah, but yeah, it's I'm very happy. Yeah, you did. You did very well. I wondered because when you did it, I was like, "Okay, he's sending that stuff to somebody that's putting it together." Because if I try to do it, it's going to take me probably a year to get one done. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, there were, there were some nights, some days that I I would be up twenty hours, maybe twenty. Yeah, yeah and I would sleep two, three hours, and but I wanted to get back into it because I had a vision. And I uh, definitely wanted to to, uh, to to make it happen. Oh, and this is my book, by the way. But well, we, right. we can talk about the next show. Okay. And um, the funny thing is when you're doing that stuff, you feel like you have to conquer it because you, you yes. can't let it win against you. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm personally. Yeah. yeah. No, you're not doing this to me. Uh-uh. Not today. <laughs> nope. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, no doubt. It's been great talking to you, and I really appreciate you having on the show. You brought some new insights, and we got to talk about Morning Zoo Radio, which is something I haven't done yet. (laughs) Oh, man. Once you do one, you've you've done them all. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it, Wally. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.